We started last week in our, looking at the first epistle, first letter of John to the churches that we said was written when he's in his 80s, towards the end of his life, and he's just pulling together his thoughts to encourage and keep the church on track. And in that last week, we considered Jesus as the eternal one, the word of life, the revelation, the one who reveals the Father to us, and how that understanding of who Jesus is brings us into fellowship with God. But not only that, it brings us into fellowship with one another. We also said that our fellowship with one another, our relating together, is a means of increasing our fellowship with God. That's what John is saying in the letter. And it's that, it's that relating with each other and with relating with God that will bring fullness of joy. We suggested that in the remainder of the letter, John deals with everything that gets in the way of that fellowship. Everything that stops us either being in relationship with God or relationship with one another is what John is addressing in this letter. And what he deals with in the section we're going to look at today is that old chestnut, sin. He says, sin gets in the, in the way of your relationship with God and in a relationship with each other. And that's why God is always angry at sin. He's not just somebody who likes to get angry at things. He's angry at sin because it ruins our relationship with him and with one another. Now, let's define sin as we do on the uh, rediscovery course. Sin is missing the mark. It's anything in our lives that doesn't line up with God's character and the way he wants us to be. That's what sin is. It's not just something naughty but nice or anything, anything else we could put on it. It's something that stops us lining up with how God has created us to be. So that's what's what, why God is angry with sin, because he wants us to be all that he has in his heart for us to be. And when we are disobedient, when we walk out of his plan, when we don't line up with who he is, that ruins it, spoils it, spoils and mars his creation. So that's why John is addressing it here. So let's read the passage. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So the commencement of this is um, that John begins with is um, to look at God himself. And the key to this whole passage is in John's opening statement. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Everything that John goes on to say in our reading hangs off that statement. 
John is telling us that in his very essence, God is light. What does that mean? Does it mean that if you and I were to encounter God directly, we'd be encountering light in its purest form? Possibly, but I think what John is identifying, and this is confirmed by what follows, is that God is absolute moral purity. There is no shadow, there's no darkness in him, there's no sin, there's nothing to, 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 except brilliant, bright whiteness of his perfection. There's no hint of badness or wrong in any size, shape or form. And it's important to establish this. Because people accuse God of this, that and the other. If God was really loving, he wouldn't allow this to happen. As creatures, how can we possibly judge our creator? Our starting point in considering what happens on the earth must always be that God is perfect. And we've then got to rearrange our thinking if it seems otherwise. The starting point is God is perfect. God is just. God always works right, rightfully. Right, let's sort out our approach to these issues. Not, how can God have done this? Because if he, if he did that, he wouldn't be loving. Well, that's the wrong approach. We've got to start from a different standing point. God is perfect. God is just. God is all loving. Then we have to try and understand what happens in life on the basis of that. For us, when we encounter God in that form... It's like coming before a mirror in a well-lit room. How many people like coming before a mirror in a well-lit room? Many of us prefer not to do that, as it shows up all our wrinkles and all our blemishes. And the older you get, the more it shows. That's a good one. Yeah, I found that, but I also can't see anything either. (laughs) You can't hide from the light. When we come to God, nothing can be hidden from him. Everything in our life is shown up for what it is. Nothing of our past or our present can be kept under wraps. God sees it all, and there's no hiding from him. And so John goes on to say, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in in us. In other words, if we claim to be a Christian... And we claim to be living in a righteous way with God, serving him and giving the impression that that all is fine to other Christians. And yet at the same time, we're doing something willfully and deliberately that we know is wrong. Whether or not other people know about it, it's ourselves we're deceiving. Our relationship with God is not as real as we pretend it is. Because there's stuff in the way that's being shone every time we we get into his presence. So the, the main thing that we tend to do is not go into his presence. You can't pretend everything is okay with God, with you and God, but be carrying on doing something, some kind of secret sin. It may appear okay from the outside, but what it it will affect is your fellowship with God and ultimately your fellowship with other members of the body. And only you or I know if that's the case with us. But God also knows, and he won't let you get away with it for too long. However, John then, then lays out the corollary of this. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. See, the real key to fellowship with one another is dependent on our walking in openness and honesty with our God. Fellowship 
True fellowship is not just about friendship over a coffee, although it is that as well. But true fellowship is a function of the quality of my and your walk with God. The closer you and I are with God, the more open we are in our relationship with him, the closer we will become to one another and the more we will walk in the fellowship that John has in mind. It's about clearing out the clutter so that we can be honest and open, one with another and with God. If we're scrimping on our walk with him, our fellowship will be poor. But if we're investing in our relationship with God, our fellowship will be rich and will bring about that fullness of joy that John spoke about in verse 4. And more than that, we can be assured that if we walk in honesty and openness with our God, he says, the blood of Jesus will be effective in our lives to cleanse us and to purify us. In other words, when our relationship with God is real and honest, we don't have to worry about whether this sin or that sin has been forgiven. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross is the guarantee that all my sin has been dealt with and that God is in the process of clearing me up. You see, sin should not be an issue for Christians. That's what John's message is here. If we're in right relationship with God and are not hiding anything from him, then any shortcomings on our behalf will also be in the light and will be dealt with quickly and forgiven and put behind us. John's emphasis here is not trying on, in us trying to overcome sin, but says, you walk right with God and the rest will fall into place. You get your relationship with God in an honest state. You try, don't try and hide anything from him. And sin ceases to be an issue because you're just walking with him and you don't want anything to mar that relationship. And this is the key to overcoming sin. It's not in focusing on trying to overcome sin. It's in our fellowship with God. The problem is, however, that when we sin, we tend to do the opposite. We run away from God. We avoid him. We hide from him. Just as they did in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Sin exposes us, but God provides a covering through the blood of his son. However, the only way our sin can be covered up and cleansed is if we come openly and honestly before him, allow his light to shine in our lives and to deal with that which is exposed. That's how we maintain our relationship with him. Verse 8 also gives us some reassurance. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. No one's pretending everyone's perfect here. And John is owning up to that. He's saying, look, don't, don't pretend you're perfect. We're all, none of us are without sin. Pretending we don't sin or even worse, being self-righteous just won't cut it. We all sin. That's part of the human condition. And that will continue to be the case until we're glorified. And that should reassure us. I'm no better or worse than the next Christian. And guess what? I sin. I don't usually intend to do it, but I do. And if I was to stand here and say otherwise, I'd be a hypocrite. And I'd be deceiving myself. And John's making it very real for us. Look, get real, guys. You do sin. But it's all right. Just get it right with God. 
get your relationship right. And it all gets dealt with. And you don't have to be in guilt and worry about it because God's dealing with it. The issue for all of us is not whether we sin or not, because we all do. But whether we're willing to own up to the fact that we sin and have it dealt with so that we can continue in our fellowship with God and with one another. And this is fantastically reassuring. John's aim is not to bring a guilt trip on us, but rather to help us see things as they really are and to live in the light, dealing with anything that affects our fellowship with God as soon as it comes into the light. And in the following verse, he gives one of the greatest reassurances in Scripture. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse or purify us from all unrighteousness. And I found that very reassuring in my life at times. For me, it's the guarantee that God will always forgive me on confession of what I have done wrong. There's nothing that I can do that God will not forgive if I confess it. Think about that for a moment. There is nothing that you can do that God will forgive, not forgive, if you confess it. But, doesn't you, but you say, doesn't that give us a license to sin more? If we know we're going to be forgiven, it doesn't matter how, how, how we behave or how much we sin. I've known people who have taken that attitude and done unspeakable things on the basis that God will always forgive them. But that's to miss the point of what John is saying here. The assurance is not given as a license to sin, but rather as a means of keeping us in fellowship with God. And if someone continues willfully to sin, knowing they're doing something that is going to keep them out of fellowship with God, the truth isn't in them. They're deceiving themselves. They're lying to everybody else. Their relationship with God is just a a sham, as their sin is more important to them than fellowship with God. That person isn't in a real relationship with God if they think they can go out and sin as much as they like just because they'll get forgiven. That's not real fellowship. That's not living and walking in the light. Yesterday at Don and Jean's, I put on a brand new shirt that I'd only got this mo- that, that morning. And there as I ate eating my veggie curry, the juice ran down this new shirt. I was not impressed. And if you had a favorite shirt or top that was pure white and you spilt coffee down it, you'd be devastated. But if you knew there was a miracle cleaning agent that brought the top to be exactly the condition of brightness that it had when you bought it, would that mean that you would go out and deliberately throw coffee over it? That would seem to undermine the value you, you, you pretend to put on it. In the same way, if we truly value our relationship with God, why would we do something repeatedly that would compromise or mar that relationship? If we continue to willfully and deliberately sin, our relationship with God is not as important as the pleasure or satisfaction we derive from the sin we keep repeating. We're just living a lie. And John's purpose, as I said before, is not to put a guilt trip on us, but just to expose our self-deception and hypocrisy so that we can live as God always intended us to live, in the light, in fellowship with him and with one another. Then in John 
2, 1 to 2, John gives us his reason for writing, writing all this. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. The whole point of him writing is so that we don't sin. You can hear the voice of the pastor here. Doesn't want his audience to get caught in this willful trap. And so he's addressed them. And he's addressed them in very black and white terms. So let's just summarize what we've said. God's light will expose your sin. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar and you make God out to be a liar. If you sin, it will affect your relationship with God and with others. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God and with one another. If we confess our sins, he guarantees to forgive us. And all this is given to maintain our fellowship with God and with one another. However, next he tells us that Jesus is our advocate. And when you get things wrong, it's good to have someone to plead on your behalf. The word in Greek is the word parakletos and is used of the Holy Spirit as well in John 14 to 17. And it literally means one who is called alongside to give aid, to bring comfort, and to act as a barrister on your behalf. In other words, John is saying that when we sin, Jesus is standing before the Father in heaven saying, don't count their sins against them. Look at the blood shed on their behalf, which is still sufficient for their forgiveness. He's there. That's his role right now in glory, to stand before the Father and plead for you every time you sin. He's saying, Father, don't count it against them. I've paid the price. They don't need to bear the guilt of their sin anymore. And he's pleading before the Father for us. He's our heavenly barrister before the Father. And Hebrews 7.25 tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us. That's what Jesus is doing in heaven as an advocate. On earth, the Holy Spirit comes and knocks on the door of our heart. He says, you know that thing you did? Do you think you ought to confess it? You know, you really ought to, you know. If you confess it, it will be dealt with. It doesn't need to go up against you anymore. You're forgiven because Jesus is pleading up there, but let's have a little word. Let's go for, go for a little walk. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And then John goes to, on to affirm the all-sufficiency of the death of Jesus on the cross. He says that Jesus is our propitiation. That's the word you don't hear every day in English, do you? Not one that jumps off the tongue, or we're very familiar with. But it's a term that goes right to the heart of sacrifice, right to the heart of the cross. And it's talking about that anger that I talked about earlier of God, God's anger with sin. And God is angry with sin because it keeps us divided from him and divided from one another. And God needed to deal something about it. And when people do things wrong, there is an expectation of punishment. But a propitiation is that which turns aside the anger. So that when he looks on us, he no longer sees our sin. Because the punishment for it has already been carried out. That's what Jesus did. He has taken the anger of God towards sin that was aimed at us because we are the sinners and he's borne it on our behalf. That's a propitiation. If my son sins and I punish him in some way, although they're too old to punish now, they can do what they like. They're grown-ups. They can stand before God on their own behalf. But when they were young, 
if they sinned. And I punished them in some way. But then two weeks later, I punished them again for the same sin. Would I be an unjust father? If they'd sinned, and then it was all dealt with, but then I thought I'd give them some more punishment two weeks later. Do you think that would be fair? No, it wouldn't. See, once the punishment has happened, the sin is dealt with. It's gone. It's no longer relevant. And in the same way, the punishment for our sin has already been dealt with. We don't have to punish ourselves. We don't have to flagellate ourselves to make us feel better. Jesus has borne the punishment for all our sin. It's dealt with. It's gone. It's forgiven. We don't have to live in guilt any longer for the past. He's set us free from that by being the propitiation, the one who bore the wrath of God on our behalf. He took the punishment so that we don't have to. Another example of my boys. Many, many years ago, on our chest of drawers at home, (laughs) we found scratched, etched in the top of it, probably with a compass, the name Josh. Was it Jonty? Oh, was it Jonty was scratched? So we punished Jonty. Many years later, it came out that it was Josh who had written it. Jonty bore the, pe- the punishment for Josh's sin. <laughs> Jesus has borne the punishment for our sin. It's not fair, it's not just, but it's love and it's grace. Our guilt is removed from us, not because we deserve for it to be so, not through anything we've done, but simply because of the blood of Jesus poured out for us. He's borne our punishment that we might go free. And further, he's borne the punishment for the sins of the whole world. Nobody needs to bear the punishment for their sin. Everybody has the opportunity to stand before God on judgment day and say, I know I was a sinner, but Jesus bore my sin. And and the the father says, welcome into, into glory. Nobody needs to go to hell. Nobody goes to hell for their sin because it's dealt with. They go to hell for rejecting the solution to their sin, which is in Jesus. As far as God is concerned, our sin is no longer an issue. It's dealt with once and for all. It only becomes an issue if, in spite of all this knowledge, we still willfully and deliberately sin and hide it. Effectively, by doing so, we disregard the great work that Jesus has done and continues to do on our behalf. And it's for this reason that it mars our fellowship with God and with one another. So how do we overcome sin? We seek to have the best relationship we can with God and with one another. We don't overcome sin by overcoming sin, but by walking in fellowship with the Father and dealing with all the issues that arise along the way.